Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader Store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader Stay Home Puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Drosky Show as I speak. It's Friday, April 15th, 2022. And you know what a day it is? Yeah, I know it's tax day, but forget that for the moment. It's Harold Washington birthday. Uh, if he was alive, he'd turn 100. And I am really going to bury the cynical in myself. I've been very cynical about this all week and, and a column I just wrote and other comments I've made. And uh, the love that I'm watching people just the pouring out from corporate and civic Chicago and editorial Chicago, everybody loves Harold. I think we could officially add him to the list of the, you love him when he's gone. Karen Lewis is on that list. Uh, as is Martin Luther King, Muhammad Ali. And of course, Harold Washington, but I'm not going to be cynical or jaded. I'm going to be positive. And idealistic, like I was when I was a very young man back in the days of Harold Washington's campaign. How about that, ladies and gentlemen? All right, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce herself, uh, and then we're going to get right down to it. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Happy Friday, Ben. This is Stacey Davis-Gates, uh, phoning in from the Chicago Teachers Union and also wishing um, our beloved mayor, Harold Washington, a very happy heavenly birthday. Yes. Uh, Stacy. there's three items on the list that I uh, want to talk to you about. Uh, we're going to get to those. Uh, Justice uh, Jackson, Richard Irvin, and uh, Brittany Griner. We're going to cover those. Boom, boom, boom. But do you have any Harold Washington reflections to offer? I know you're we were just talking about this before we went in the air. You're a little younger than me, so uh, you may not have a lot of memories from the Harold Washington years. You were a kid growing up in South Bend, Indiana. Do you have any memories of, of Harold from back in the day? Very vivid memories, actually, um, of, both, uh, of both of his wins and also of his death. Um, vivid memories. That wasn't a victory that was shared only with Chicagoans. That was a victory that Black people celebrated um, internationally. Um, you know, I think I've said before on this show that both sides of my family tree um, have roots here in Chicago and both maternal and paternal grandparents stopped in Chicago on their way to Indiana. That being said, um, Harold Washington's victory as seen on WFLD and WGN, you know, by a girl in South Bend. Um, I don't know. It was a reflection of what was possible. Um, I really and truly believe that I grew up in the most bittersweet of times where you see political power in mayors um, in major cities, Detroit, LA, Chicago, um, Atlanta, um, that it that it was possible for us to be us black people um, to be in charge 
not even a generation after the civil rights movement, like a half a generation, if you will. Um, so the promise um, and then the reflection um, was profound. It was motivating. Um, it gives you an opportunity to say um, all of this work, all of this hope has a landing place. So um, I'm still inspired by clips from that time period, his smile. Um, he had a way about him that even in the most um, ten tension-filled like moments, um, it was just so smooth and measured and uh, brilliant. It, at the time of watching it as a kid, you just think that this guy is either a superhero or a genius and perhaps both. And as a grown-up, the connection of that example to what we saw with Justice Brown Jackson and her confirmation hearings, um, the similarities all these years later are very striking because she had to effectively do, had the same strategy in those hearings to take deep breaths, not to go too far up or too far down, but to just remain even in the face of some trash behavior by those who were never going to vote for her confirmation, never going to um, honor and respect her leadership um, and achievements. So, um, so far we've come and so far we still have to go. Yes, uh, well put. And we'll get into Katanji Brown. I'm just going to uh, draw a distinction between the two. Uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson, I would, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to go there yet because I really want to hear your thoughts on that, uh, unfiltered by anything I say, but I'll just say this, Harold Washington, uh, one of the great things I liked about him, I there's so much I liked about the guy, but, uh, everything to, to everything you said about the smile, the charisma, uh, and, uh, his graciousness and all that, uh, he, he, he was a fighter. And so he was one, he was, he was a boxer. I mean, he trained as a boxer as a kid or as a teen. And Stacy, if you hit him, he was going to punch back to anybody. Like I got a, uh, it, I was lucky to interview him. I didn't know him as peers, obviously, but I interviewed him uh, more than once as a baby reporter. It was just a baby, Stacy. And um, the things he would say, about Burke, Ed Burke, who was still an alderman in the city council, uh, and by black leaders that uh, he was the one who told me, Stacy, he go, it was, he was on this riff, and he told me, I was so young and impressionable, he told me uh, that uh, black people are like crabs in a crab barrel. If they see one getting out of the crab, uh, out of the barrel, they're going to reach back to pull them down. And uh, first of all, I never heard that metaphor before. So that kind of blew my mind. I, oh, been, well, I uh, think what he was trying to say, um, and you know, I've heard that before. I have um, a softer and more giving reflection to black people. Um, the white supremacy and, and oppression that um, melanated people experience worldwide um, makes presentation in anti-blackness. And anti-blackness is not something that only other than black people get to demonstrate. But if we are being socialized in spaces that do not honor, respect, or see the dignity and humanity of black people, it is very easy for all who are being socialized in that space to devalue, dehumanize and degrade. And so while I've heard that before and I understand that it has a place, I do want to temper that criticism and, and, and put it into its proper perspective that we are socialized to believe as oppressed people that there is a scarcity of fill in the blank and that we have to fight each other to receive resource, love, 
compassion, understanding, jobs, housing, um, the list goes on. Instead of understanding that in this system of oppression anchored by capitalism, that there's never enough of anything. That's the whole point. So I think it's a reflection of the impacts of capitalism and racialized capitalism. That's how I would say that. So I would be a bit more generous um, to our people who are surviving this. Well, he was actually talking about uh, uh, elected officials. Uh, I, I understand everything you Them were saying. Them too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're feeling very forgiving today, Stacey Davis. Well, it's not forgiving. You know, I say this all the time, Ben. If we misdiagnose, so think about it like this. If a doctor misdiagnoses what's happening to your body and then gives you um, a plan of treatment and then you're still coming back with the same problem, then that hasn't helped you. It, it is a benefit for us to get it right in the diagnostic stage. So we're able to write the proper treatment plan. So we're not dealing with those feelings. And so um, it, I, we should be generous to human beings. We deserve that. And in order for us to survive in this world, we, we have to be a bit more reflective and clear about what the issues are that are ailing us, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And I am going to try. And I'm not being facetious in any way to be, uh, what's the word, uh, compassionate to people that I don't agree with all the time. But uh, the point I made about Harold, he was not afraid of throwing a counterpunch to anybody that got oh, in his damn, way. Oh, damn, me neither. <laughs> but we're complex, you know, individuals. Yeah. We, can, we can do both. <laughs> yes, and Harold could do both. Uh, and then in the next breath, just smile at you and go, oh, it's all good, you know, because he got mad at me once or twice about something I may have written or said. And I felt that stick. But the, ah, after that, well, it was a great question you asked. He would say something like that. All right. Uh, let's move on from the great Harold Washington. Um, happy birthday, Harold. Uh, it's literally his birthday as we have this conversation. And let's talk about uh, Justice Jackson, uh, Brown, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson. And I have so many thoughts on this, which I've expressed uh, that hearing that this, she went through the Senate confirmation hearing. Uh, I sent you the headline in the New York Times, which I've talked about endlessly and written about uh, the attitude expressed in that headline. I believe unstated attitude about um, black voters in America. And I'll just read the headline to you again. I know I sent it to you. Uh, I sent it to you literally the day I saw it, took a picture of it, sent it to you. After grilling judge, GOP sees opening to win black voters. Stacey, I'm like, I still can't, I still can't believe somebody wrote that. These white MAGA senators just totally trashed the reputation of this eminently qualified justice. And then they turn around and go, oh, this should win us some votes with black people. I'm like, I don't know what planet they're living on. Anyway, Stacey, uh, that's my take on things in the most general sense. Let's just sort of summarize your attitude about what went down with Katanji Brown-Jackson and the hearing and what it says about where we are today. Go ahead. It was an exercise in power, both over a Black person and a woman, um, by a power structure that refuses to see the dignity of all people in this country. It was gross. It was dispiriting. It was violent. Um, I'm not over it yet. I don't know if I'll ever get over seeing such violence. Um, and it was by people who understood very clearly what they were doing. Um, they knew that they didn't have the votes to impede her um, ascent to the Supreme Court. They knew that she was qualified to be there because many of them had already voted for her, um, see Lindsey Graham, right? Um, and yet they felt a, a, a right and a privilege to put her in her place, to um, regulate her voice and her being the hard to try and marginalize 
her education, um, her contributions, her professional expertise. Um, it was a classic, I'm about to put this gal in her place. Um, and then this reflection by our mainstream media sources that this demonstration would win more people, um, more black people to their ideology perhaps is quintessentially a privileged viewpoint, especially when you see voters and not people, or when you see, yeah, when you just don't see humanity. Like, honestly, that was a lot of emotion and violence wrapped up in just that particular event. Um, I know people who didn't even watch it because they didn't know if they could function in their workspaces or within their households in a way that was positive if they had watched it. And I know people who did watch it who took personal days off um, to regroup. And I know other people who watched it who did go to work and avoided all discussion about it. Um, it was violent. When you say it was violent, what do you mean by that? Um, it was an assault. And it was an assault. And it was a bully. They were bullies. Because they knew that if she punched them back, that she would jeopardize the thing that um, she was there to um, get. She didn't just sit before them because she wanted to be abused. She sat before them because she was both qualified and ready to be a member of the Supreme Court. So their objective was to humiliate her, was to call her names, was to ask questions that were completely disconnected from the role and the responsibilities of the job she had. And then they dared her to be an angry black woman. They dared her, listen to this part, they dared her to be a human being and have any type of emotional response when the last creature, um, the second to the last creature who was confirmed got up there and cried and yelled, um, pushed back, um, had free facial expression, was liberated in his attempts to push back. Like it's really um, a, a study in contrast, privilege, um, white supremacy, misogyny, um, the particular type of um, misogyny and sexism that black women um, have to um, endure if they dare to participate in public life. And that's not just at a Supreme Court table, a confirmation at a, at a table on Capitol Hill, but it's also at McDonald's. <laughs> it's also at Wendy's. It may be getting on the CTA or walking down your street. Um, these are indignities that you figure out how to experience and survive every day. So many of the people that I knew um, cheered for her ascent and declined to watch the violence. Hmm. Uh, I want you to, best you can, to put on your political strategist hat here and explain to me and our listeners what do you think the ultimate political goal of Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham and all the other uh, hostile Republican senators were uh, when they attacked Ketanji Brown-Jackson? To continue to assert privilege and supremacy. That is a political strategy. That political strategy is why in Alabama, you can regulate transgendered people um, to second-class citizenship. It is why you can pass laws in Georgia that um, say that you can't pass water out to people and lines miles long. It is that same type of behavior that um, maintains a very segregated and inequitable Chicago. It is why you probably don't live across the street or next door to anyone black. It's why I don't live across the street or next door to anyone white. 
it is the same type of behavior. It's, 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 it's holding on for dear life to a fallacy that if you are male and if you are white, that you lead when we know that that is not the truth, that our America was built by every single um, ethnicity and gender and generation, that the reason why our country is as great as it is for as flawed as it is, is because we've all contributed to its greatness. Whether or not people invited us to contribute, whether or not folks in power wanted our contributions, the struggle for citizenship has made America better. The, the, the struggle for enfranchisement has made us better. The struggle for integration has made us better. All of these struggles make us better, but we forget about that when we tell the story of the founding fathers. For as brilliant as they put, as brilliant as many of them were, right? The brilliance of this country is in the inclusion and in the struggle that makes it better. And so it is difficult for people who do not want to share and who do not want to see the humanity and contributions of others to allow that story to be told, which is why they are um, attacking books and, and, and the instruction of history and literature, right? Um, because if, they, if those people, um, which really come in the form of the GOP, but not you know, exclusively, um, if they can corner off the reality of how this great country was molded, because it wasn't molded through the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or the amendment process only. It was molded through the struggle of human beings seeking full enfranchisement, citizenship in their humanity. And that means all of us. So, you know, that's really the trick of them saying all lives matter. It is it's the trick of it. It's, it's, a, it's a dog whistle for that side. And if that counted, then they wouldn't be battling against CRT now, would they? Uh, we'll get into All Lives Matter a little bit because one of the names on the list of things we're going to talk about is uh, Republican gubernatorial candidate Richard Urban, uh, who has proclaimed All Lives Matter on more than one of his uh, commercials. So we'll get into that. Uh, all right. So, again, with your political strategist hat on, uh, the very pragmatic side of Stacey Davis Gates, uh, and there is, ladies and gentlemen, a very pragmatic side uh, to Stacey Davis Gates. You wouldn't know uh, me if there wasn't a pragmatic side. <laughs> yes, that's that is true. Uh, many levels. So, do you think it worked to their benefit? When I say they, I mean the Republican MAGA senators uh, who were uh, interrogated her uh, and uh, committed those acts against her violence, as you say. Uh, do you think it worked in that it gained them more votes? Or do you think that it ultimately backfired against them? You know what? I think we, we ask that question from the wrong perspective. So obviously watching someone get, get beat up, right? Because it was violent, doesn't help them with rational human beings, black or white, right? Any human being, Asian, Latinx. Right. It doesn't help you with anyone. I don't think that's the point. I actually think the point that I'm kind of meditating on, if you will, or reflecting on, if you will, um, is how that how the Democrats were not prepared to protect her, lift her up and have the right people on that committee do it in a way that challenged the senators directly. A confirmation process, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with the reflection and a critique. I am not okay with questions and pushback that do not relate 
to reality or fact, right? And I am sick of Black women putting on capes every two years, every four years for the Democratic Party and having to also fight them to support and protect us. We still don't have anything in the books on the federal level that helps us vote when the states, what is it, south of the Mason-Dixon, are working very hard to marginalize our ability to vote. We saw that play out in that hearing. Do you not know how? Right? That's a question. And it's a fair question because they don't do it. Do you not listen to the Black leadership within the party structure? Because it's there when they tell you how to do it. Do you believe that that type of violence is what you need in order to motivate people to vote? So is that a strategy in itself? Because if that is a strategy in itself, then you don't see my humanity either. So just really and truly evaluating why Democrats can't say hands off our Black women. Because that is something that needs some reflection as well. Cory Booker, bless his heart, tried to. But why is it just his job? Because he's being assaulted too. He's watching his sister. He's watching his mother. He's watching his niece. He's watching his cousin. He's watching a Black woman suffer through that. Now, I'm sure that that Black man had more than words to offer those senators, right? We got to do better in protecting people's humanity, and especially the humanity of those who rarely get an opportunity to, in public, be their complex, true selves. Because I know what was going on in her head. Because I've been in situations where I've had to think about how. When every natural feeling that human beings get to have is telling you not to smile, not to take a deep breath, not to stay even. When something hurts, you get to say, ouch. Because when you don't say, ouch, you die early of cancer. You get high blood pressure. You succumb to diabetes. You get brain cancer. You get breast cancer, right? It causes a dis-ease in your body because we are doing something very opposite of what is biologically natural. Uh, that's across the board, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, but it, it was particularly at play <clears throat> with Katanji Brown Jackson. Absolutely. That kind of, when you have to repress all that stuff, that is across the board. Uh, I know what you're uh, saying, Stacey. Uh, and uh, I absolutely believe that the Republicans think that's a winning strategy to assault. And then they come back and they go, well, they always call us racist when we ask tough questions. Uh, we have There's black people that we support. Herschel Walker in Georgia. We support Herschel Walker in Georgia. Larry Elders in California. You know what I'm saying, Stacey? They get this list. My granny says that the Republican Party will always keep a fly in the buttermilk to defend themselves, to use as a shield, or to lie to everyone else. Maybe and to lie to everyone else. All right. Uh... So you uh, ultimately, she will be on the Supreme Court. So let's take pause to think how great that is. It is. And why does it have to hurt to the extent that it hurt? You know, and, and people want you to forget the pain, the, the journey there because you got there. But what does it feel like when you get there? How do you perform once there? with all the trauma that you've had to overcome to get there. Are you tired? Do you want to be there? 
Are you in your best head and heart space when you get there? Or do you have to put yourself back together again and figure out how to take another deep breath? Those things count too. Again, if we are misdiagnosing, if we are mis, if we are, if our reflections are not full enough, then the way in which we move thereafter will say, well, you can do that because that strong black woman will overcome and she'll be okay. You know, she a strong black woman. You know, Zora Neale Hurston said that black women are the mules of this earth. She did, and she said that in the last century, in the last century. Yeah, this is emotional. This is emotional. It is violent. It is unfair. You know, what do I tell my two girls? What do I tell my two girls? Do I tell them to, to grin and bear it? Do I tell them to push back? How do you tell them when it's time to push back? Right? When do you tell them when it's appropriate to punch back? How do I tell them that when they are in danger to ignore their the brain that is sending signals to their body to avoid that danger because they need to get something? How do you teach kids to do that? You know, Toni Morrison tells this story of how her family left the South and moved to Ohio when she and her sister started going through puberty, when their body started to develop and her mother started observing how um, white men would look at them. She knew she couldn't protect them. And because she knew she couldn't protect them, she knew she had had she couldn't protect them in that space because she didn't have agency to protect them. Toni Morrison says that her mother said, we're moving. They packed up their entire life and moved to Ohio. Ain't that something? You know, the lessons that you learn from the black women who raise you. You know, it, it just triggers all of these memories of how you are taught to be overly responsible and overly accountable. And when bad things happen to you, you can't point somewhere else. You got to make sure that you control yourself, the environment and what people can do to you. How unreasonable is that expectation? that you have power outside of yourself to control the environment, other people in the environment, and what they, what they may or may not do to you. That is the expectation that is given to us Black girls by our Black mothers out of protection, not, out, not because they want to do it, but because they know that we're not protected. And that's what I saw up there. Um, it was violent and it was debilitating because it's 2022 and I have an almost 11 year old and an eight year old. And I got to at some point unpack this for them where I don't break their hearts. I don't break their spirits and I give them their humanity. And Ben, I can tell you very vulnerably, I don't know how in the hell I'm going to do it. All right. Um, well. I didn't expect to get this deep. No, we gotta no. Stop. We got to stop doing this on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, let's move on to the second name on the list, and that would be Richard Irvin. Uh, and Richard, I've this is something we've talked a lot about on the show, and I've written a lot about it. And I'm taking pause this week from writing about it because I find the Richard Irvin campaign uh, upsetting on many levels. So I'll get your thoughts on this. And Richard Irvin is uh, just way of introduction. People have heard me on this introduction. Was is currently the mayor of Aurora, and up till now has been more or less a centrist. Uh, he calls himself a Republican, but I could see him, uh, the career he's had, fitting into the centrist wing of the Democratic Party. He praised uh, Governor Pritzker for passing the criminal justice bill. He uh, 
uh, is a criminal defense lawyer himself. So it's kind of odd to hear him going on and on about uh, throwing people in jail as if they have no rights. Uh, he as the mayor of Aurora. They uh, had a sister city, uh, so, uh, no, a sanctuary city. I always get that wrong. A sanctuary city uh, to welcome immigrants. So he wasn't uh, anti-immigrant like so many MAGA people are. Uh, but then he got an offer from the powers that run the Republican Party or to finance it, Kenny G at the top of the list, Ken Griffin, that they would finance his campaign if he said the right things, if you read from the script. And the first uh, finance was $25 million. So I ask you listeners out there before Stacey reflects on this, would you open the window and throw out everything you believed and just say whatever they put down on that script for $25 million? Before you stand in judgment of this man, would you do it for $25 million? They say, I know some people would do it for like $10. So at least Richard Irvin held out for $25 million before he threw out everything he believed in. And he ran a commercial that said, people who look like me are the worst uh, fear to people, lefties and liberals. People who look like me and think like us. And then he says, all lives matter, which I'm sure was on the script that was prepared for him when he took the money. All right, Stacey Davis Gates, your reflections on Richard Irvin and his campaign for governor. We need to pray for Richard Irvin. We do, right? Um, maybe this is Benevolent Friday. Um, maybe because it's Good Friday. Maybe because, you know, I'm waiting to celebrate the resurrection on Sunday. I don't know, you know, what, where, where this is coming from. Listen, I think part of this example, let me first say this. I think it's disgusting. Let me get that out first. I think it's disgusting the way in which he's being propped. He's allowing himself to be propped up to drown out, ameliorate, and erase um, the experiences and voices um, of Black people all across Illinois who want to be regarded as human beings, right? I, I think that is sick and disgusting. Um, number two, I think it is sicker and disgusting that the power structure doesn't believe that our humanity is within the framework of our values as Americans, right? Um, Richard Irving is here to disrupt and confuse and distract. He's not here to win because he ain't gonna win. Th that's it. He's just not gonna win. But he's here to disrupt a message that Black lives do in fact matter. Now, think about how insidious it is to, to get a Black man to agree to participate in that way. And as a political actor himself, he's got to know that this is not about him becoming governor. This is about him providing a counter narrative to Black people who want their full citizenship and enfranchisement humanity. That's his point. It should also be a wake-up call to the mainstream Democrats that while it won't work, why is it available as a strategy? Just because it won't work doesn't mean that it's available as a strategy. And and it threatens, I think it threatens the resilience of the electorate, the black electorate that does vote democratic because we gotta go through the same argument every election cycle. I don't wanna talk about that this election cycle. We never expand the platform because we're always defending. Think about that. We never go on offense when it comes to enfranchisement, citizenship, and humanity, because we're always defending. Back to Toni Morrison. She's speaking to me today. She says that, and these are, I'm paraphrasing here, because I'm, I'm just not as eloquent as she is. 
um, but I'm paraphrasing. She says that the the main purpose of racism is distraction. She said it is distraction. That if you are always telling people that you're human, then you're not being human. You're just telling people that you're human. That's a problem, Ben. Because you're not doing the work. He's keeping us in a space of where we have to continue to assert, to defend, to get you to believe instead of being, instead of demonstrating. Um, and God bless him for spitting in the face of all of the work of the ancestors that came before us. God bless them. You got to pray for souls like that. Because that type of willingness to destroy and devalue, there's something else broken inside of that man's heart that, um, that a campaign isn't going to help. We can disagree on ideology, but do not take away my right to live free. We can disagree on policy, but do not erase the fact that my life does matter in a space that you know, based on every fact before us, has been a struggle since day one. All right, Stacey, third name on the list. Uh, I could talk about Richard Irvin's campaign and what it means forever, but let's move on to the third name on the list uh, to close out our conversation uh, today on Harold Washington Day. Um, and that is uh, Brittany Griner. Uh, people, well, people who've heard uh, Stacey on my show know she is a big basketball fan. Uh, she was a basketball player herself when she was in high school, a point guard. Uh, that's the person who distributes the ball. Uh, and uh, she comes from a family of major basketball fans. Uh, and uh, she's a Bulls fan, even though she's from Indiana. So... Brittany Griner uh, is a basketball player, probably the best woman basketball player in the world. She plays in the WNBA. Uh, and also because of the, the, the salary, the low salary, relative low salary in the WNBA, like many WNBA players, uh, she plays overseas in the offseason. As such, she was traveling to Russia. Uh, she plays uh, in the Russian Professional League makes more money in the Russian professional league, ladies and gentlemen, than she does in the WNBA, just pointing that out. Uh, and she was detained on charges of possessing hashish oil. I personally have no evidence one way or the other. I think it's a trumped up charge. That's just my personal belief. That's Ben speaking, not Stacey. Uh, and that she was taken as a political prisoner to be used as a diplomatic chip by Vladimir Putin to try to get something out of the United States on the eve of him invading Ukraine. That's my personal belief, okay? Uh, curious strategy has been followed by everybody in this country from Joe Biden down to the WNBA. Not pay attention to this, not talk about it, as though that would upset Putin and he might do something horrible to Brittany Griner, as though locking her up and throwing her in prison for now two months isn't horrible enough. Uh, and so... This is now going to be a pet discussion on the Ben Jarofsky show, Stacey, because uh, I just think we should speak up about this. Uh, your thoughts on Brittany Griner being locked up in a Russian prison. Go ahead. First, you know, it's interesting to me how the media has just kind of believed that she did have drugs on her. Um, like that is a belief. And we don't believe anything else Putin says, but we, but our media is putting forth a belief that this actually happened. So, you know, guilty until proven innocent, perhaps. I don't know. Um, that's one. I think, two, um, interesting how Putin is strategizing around Britney. Because if he would have... If he would have had a black woman in his cabinet, she would have told him, 
yeah, you got to get somebody else like a white dude or a white woman because taking a queer um, black presenting woman, right, to jail. Well, hell, America does that all the time. You know, Britney doesn't have the 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 value in America like you believe she does, right? Well, Putin probably said, "Well, um, Britney is a tremendous basketball player on the international stage, and that's true. And Britney isn't LeBron. Britney isn't even Muggsy Bowles." Or Spud Webb. You understand what I'm saying? Um, which I like both of them. So no shade. But you get my point. That this. The value. That this country in particular has. For queer people. For queer people of color. Man that's something. That it doesn't even rate on the scale. And that's what we're experiencing. There's no hashtag free Britney movement. We don't, the, 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 the president doesn't, isn't bombarded with questions at briefings. His press secretary doesn't always have to answer that question. And every, who is asking, what's her name, Jen Psaki, that question every single time she gets up to that podium? Who is asking the president this question every time he takes questions from um, the White House reporters? Who's asking that question? Right? Now, folks will say that it's delicate, Stacey. And perhaps people are being sensitive to fill in the blank. Perhaps that is the, the strategy here. And... It's kind of hard for me to accept that as fact based on the experiences we've talked about already. It is a tragedy. It is a shame. And it is dangerous for Brittany to be there. You know, look, one of the things that I think black celebrities receive is a rarefied existence as a black person most of the time. Because there is some value that they present and provide to the mainstream, right? When LeBron started speaking about um, things outside of a pick and roll or um, a box and one, right? He then was told to shut up and dribble. Because that is the value that our mainstream society sees in him, um, but he's still cool because he has value there. Even if he goes out just a little bit, just a little bit, you know, I, it's not like he doesn't receive that. You know, I'm watching, uh, the, on HBO max, the, 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 I don't even know what it's called, but it's about the Lakers in the eighties, the, the oh, making of winning, winning. Winning Dynasty, the Los Angeles Lakers in the 1980s. I'm obsessively following. Yeah, well, you're, I'm, the, you're the first person on my shows. What? What a hoop fan. Yeah, well, dude, that okay. that is my introduction to basketball, though. Like that, like when we talk about basketball, it's my dad and um, you know, one of his best friends, who Uncle Lee Shern. Um, chess. Um, what was it? Miller High Life. And the Lakers in Boston, um, that whole era, that's the golden age of basketball um, with respect to like the competitiveness of the league, um, because everyone was trying to be there. Everyone like and there was parity. Right. Th that was the first time you had someone other than the Boston Celtics dominating in such a spectacular way. So you couldn't help but be a fan. That that's when we all became fans of the NBA. You know, it was a. It, now we're seeing that Dr. Bus believed that. Well, not just Dr. Bus, the women on Dr. Bus's team, especially the his daughter, right? Um, they were clear about um, how do you bring people in to watch the main event? How do you trick them into becoming uh, fans? Um, and they did a hell of a job. 
But I say that to say that I, I was going to Kareem. He was already a badass from the time he was playing ball as um, a kid in Harlem um, to like UCLA to like winning his first championship with the Milwaukee Bucks, like undeniable. And he won that in his rookie season, like undeniable talent. But he still isn't revered in the same way that Magic is, right? It, it's been his politics that, you know, provided him with a less than Madison Avenue appeal. So perhaps that's, you know, the roots of this is, is are, are embedded in that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I... Uh... By the way, just I have to make this clarification. I just have to say this, even though it's a little off uh, tangent. Not everybody in the universe was a fan of the Lakers or the Celtics in the 1980s. There were those, including I'm thinking of one in particular uh, podcast host from Chicago who's always wearing a Bulls hat, who are diehard Bulls fans and hated the Celtics and the Lakers and when what would watch them play each other and would root for each team to lose. How is that possible? You ask? Well, that's what I did back in the, I rooted whoever was losing. I would root for them. And if they went ahead, I would root for the team that was now losing. And then when it was over, I was disappointed. because So you rooted for Detroit when they finally did throw on the Lakers. Then. Oh my goodness. This is shocking con confession. What a, quick counterpunch from uh, Stacey Davis Gates. Yes, in 1988 I was really rooting for the Lakers, uh, excuse me, for the, the Pistons when they played the Lakers and they lost in game seven, the Pistons did, because uh, Isaiah Thomas twisted his ankle. I still remember. Man. I was rooting for the Pistons. Chicago. And they were the better team. They were the better team. The only reason why, like, they were the better team. The Pistons were, and I love, this is also good, I love Dennis Rodman, have loved Dennis Rodman from the moment I saw him covering Larry Bird in 1987. I go, who is this rookie? I love this guy. So I was a huge Piston fan, but then, man, <laughs> I turn on the Pistons and fast uh, with those great battles with the Bulls, and they walked off wouldn't shake their hands. Come on, Isaiah. You know you should have shook Michael Jordan's hand and not listen to Bill Lambert. You know what? He should have. And, dude, I, you know, I'm not as critical as Zeke as most people are. I, I just can't be. Like, Zeke's origin story, his ability to be who he is in this moment, dude, you can't turn that stuff off and turn it on. That's just a part of who that kid that kid was and who that man is. Um, and I hear it. Look, I, I'm there for the critique. I'm not I'm not going to get into a debate with anyone about it because I would lose the debate. I fully recognize that. And like, get a dude a break, man. <laughs> West side of Chicago. And, and to be where he is, you don't just you can't turn it on and turn it off. Like that dude, hard scrabble. Oh. He he gets he gets to have his edge. Well, I'd love. To we don't know Zeke without the edge, man. Okay, I, I would love to bring Stacy Davis Gates to my bowling team's gathering and have her explain this to the guys on my team. Oh my goodness, that would be. We could have a pay for play watching that argument. These guys <laughs> have still not forgiven Isaiah. I'm more forgiving nah. to them than they are. They're like, nope, never gonna do it. He's the, the most hated Chicago player. He's the greatest, in my humble opinion. Just. I think, and I think that's so freaking unfair. Like at the root, I think that's unfair. Like Zeke is Chicago. I get people. Look, I'm, I love, I love Michael's game. Love his game. I do. I, he's, he's the best to ever do it. Indisputable fact, right? We'll go to my grave with that. And Zeke is Zeke is quintessentially Chicago and West Side. And if people hate on that, they hate on their city. You cannot hate on the fact that that man is Chicago up and down that court, controlling the floor of the game, fighting for every possession. Dude, he is he plays both ends of the court. He don't just shoot the ball and call the play. He comes down and he plays defense. 
You will not get an argument from me on anything you just say in terms of Isaiah Thomas as a basketball player. I was just about to say, in my humble opinion, he's the greatest basketball player to come out of Chicago. There, I said it. That's right. I just, That's right. I, Period. Point blank. I've been watching basketball in Chicago since the 60s, ladies and gentlemen. I've seen Period. him all. Point blank. He is the he best. He's the best that we know. He's the best that we know. Let's also say it like that. We, he's the best that we know. Because Chicago eats his young, That's true. so like you know, I want to I want to put an asterisk there. He's the best we know because one some might say it was his older brother. Well, if if you're going to make that argument, and now we're really far afield, I would put put in for a, a name who's lost in the past. But everybody, anybody over the age of seventy, Billy will know what I'm talking. Billy the Kid Harris came out of DuSable High School. This guy was an, I wish Les Grubbs, he was alive, he would have tested. This guy was such a phenomenal basketball player, shooter, dribbler, dunker, everything. And uh, he just didn't make it in the NBA, he died young. Uh, I, I, but so, yes, your point's well taken. There are some great playground legends. But in terms of people who made it out of the playgrounds, Isaiah Thomas, no doubt about it. But I'll say this, and Craig Hodges was on the show and he said the same thing. You should have. Put it aside. You shouldn't have listened to Bill Lambeer. You should have shaken their hands because you're from Chicago. And this was a big moment. You grew up a Bulls fan, Isaiah Thomas. All right, look at Stacey's like, no. All right, we're gonna we're gonna avoid that. Any further discussion? I'm gonna just like I ain't mad about Craig and the Daishiki at the White House. You dig? I'm I'm not mad about that. Like, look, you gotta give people their space and their like their space to be themselves. Now, <clears throat> here's the thing. Isaiah could say my bad later, but like you cannot like trash his entire legacy off that one moment where your emotions are on a hundred. Like I hate when non-athletes, I hate when anyone, athlete, non-athlete tells an athlete who's given their heart and soul, you telling me how to lose? You telling me how to react to a loss? Shame on the the capitalistic side of professional athletics that make people who are competitors um, suck up a loss like that and then smile and be gracious. Like, man, please. You don't have to smile. You can shake a man's hand. Look, again, I can't argue that fact. I cannot argue that that is right. And all of the hate and the legacy of the hate, the unforgiveness, that, that's unfair, man. That man gets to say my bad. He gets to say I was caught up in the emotion. He gets to, he gets to say, he, people get to forgive him for that. Uh, they do. All right. You know, as the gracious host of the show, I will allow my guest to have the last word on that point. Uh, and let's just... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's see Isaiah Thomas. That's that's how you do it. You allow the guest to have the last word uh, on that point. <laughs> so, um, but let's close with remembering where we were. Brittany Griner locked in prison, being treated totally differently. I uh, did an interview with uh, Maya Goldberg Safer, a writer for Jacobin uh, Magazine. I urge everybody to check that interview out. It'll be dropping after this interview, and she takes the deep dive in it. Uh, including the WNBA's bizarre strategy of not talking about it, which is so weird, uh, Stacey, because as Maya was talking about, just imagine if, God forbid, LeBron James. But the WNBA is not political. It wasn't the WNBA. See, this is where our awareness of workers and their advocacy organizations, hashtag unions, is an important point for us to explore. See, people keep thinking that the WNBA said Black Lives Matter. People keep believing that it was the WNBA that gave into the activism, the voice, and the clarity of the of the, of the WNBA players. That was the Players Association. That those were the workers who did that. So not so the WNBA is doing what business does with capitalism don't that's what they do the union their players association was the anchor to their voice their activism it was the protector of it right so i and i think and i can't wait to read the article because i'm i'm guessing that that is you know probably one of the 
the dots that um, the, the writer will, the reporter will connect. Um, but like, let's not like get it messed up here. It's not necessarily the institution or the business where the worker works that defends the humanity of that worker. It is typically that union, players association, advocacy organization that do, does that. I just wanted to make that quick distinction. All right, we are completely out of time, but and that's a it's a good point. Uh, uh, Nate is sending me email, text messages. We're out of time, so I just want to say this: I not only conclude podcasts uh, by giving my uh, guests the final word if I disagree with them. But if I agree with them, it's good that we're going to close by on this discussion by saying I completely agree with what you just said. And the WNBA will change its tune when the players just say, you know what? We don't like this song you want us to sing. We're going to sing our song. And uh, I think, yeah. Uh, all right, Stacey Davis-Gates, it's always a blast talking to you. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.